0: This is the Washington State Indivisible podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. This week, our town hall with Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. is one of the most powerful figures in Congress as senior whip of the Democratic Caucus and the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She joins us to discuss the first 100 days of the 117th Congress and the Biden administration what's been accomplished, and what progressive goals still lie ahead on things like infrastructure, health care, police reform, and so much more. This was recorded live on Saturday, April 24th.
1: We're joined again today by one of the most powerful progressives in Congress, as well as one of the top Democrats. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal represents Washington's 7th District, which includes most of Seattle. She serves on the House Budget Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, the Subcommittee on Immigration and Border Security, among others. She's also the Senior Whip of the Democratic Caucus, and she's the Chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Yes! <laughs> With that, I'm now happy to hand things off to our moderator, Stephen Cox.
0: Well, how about that for an introduction, Congresswoman? We're very enthusiastic here. We're so happy to see you. How are you? How are you doing today?
1: i am great i am absolutely great and so happy to be with you all and thanks to everybody for taking the time on a on a rainy saturday afternoon
0: well as we were saying we're going to use that to our advantage because when it's sunny out people want to go out and and do stuff so we've got a lot of things that we want to talk about today certainly we want to review uh, the first 100 days of this congress and also of, of the biden administration a lot of this is going to be very positive and we will get to that but i do want to start by getting your thoughts on Tuesday's verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial. Um, specifically, we have heard from a number of people like, for example, uh, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, that the verdict didn't signal justice, but it did signal accountability. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts here? And, and also, how would you like to see us respond to this moment as a country?
1: Yeah, thanks for the question. It's a, it's a really complex moment. I will tell you that there was enormous relief is um, one word that we all felt, my Black Caucus members on the floor, um, you know, a lot of tears, because we have seen so many instances where it seemed cut and dried, and yet the verdict turned out in the opposite way. AND SO IT FELT LIKE THE JUSTICE SYSTEM WAS NEVER RESPONDING IN THE WAY THAT IT SEEMED VERY CLEAR IT SHOULD RESPOND. AND SO THAT WAS THE RELIEF, I THINK, IS THAT FOR ONCE, THE JUSTICE SYSTEM SEEMED TO BE RESPONDING IN THE WAY IT NEEDED TO RESPOND, AND QUICKLY. I MEAN, THE FACT THAT THE JURY CAME BACK SO QUICKLY WAS ALSO AN ENORMOUS SOURCE OF RELIEF, I GUESS, BECAUSE IT it WAS CLEAR. IT SHOULDN'T HAVE TAKEN ANY TIME AT ALL. But the other piece is that obviously, you know, George Floyd is not with us. He died. He was murdered by law enforcement with a knee on his neck. Dante Wright is no longer with us. We have so many names that we keep saying who have not seen any justice. Tamir Rice didn't see any justice. It just goes on and on. And so it doesn't feel like justice, it feels like accountability in that one case but we still have so much work to do because every single day there is another shooting. And the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which we passed in the House, is one important step forward. The Senate needs to pass it and the president needs to sign it into law. But Stefan, you know that I also feel that we dramatically need to transform public safety in this country. We really need to have a different, an acknowledgement of how deeply terrified black people, brown people, indigenous people are in this country of even going outside the home. And that is work that we can do at the local level as well.
0: I think that's something that we all need to be thinking about as activists and the role that we play in that. You know, you mentioned the the George Floyd Uh, Justice in Policing Act, which, of course, the House passed in March. And I understand that there are negotiations with Republicans, including uh, Tim Scott in the Senate. And my question to you on this is, how do we as progressives get this piece of legislation right, actually get the reform passed, but also make sure that key provisions like, say, qualified immunity aren't stripped away?
1: Well, that is my concern with any Um, you know, sort of compromise when we have Republicans who I see day after day in the Judiciary Committee just continuing to have, you know, exhibit no clue about racism in this country. Now, obviously I think um, Senator Scott seems to be a good faith actor, but are we really gonna get 10 Republicans onto a compromise that is going to be sufficient to address the scale of the crisis we face? I'm dubious. And so I think that Democrats are in this position now on policing, on voting rights, on HR 1 and, and uh, corporate accountability, on immigration, on so many issues where we just need to barrel ahead with Democrats to make sure that we are really passing policies that address the problems that people face.
0: You are talking uh, philosophically about something that I really want to delve into more deeply, which is that that balance uh, there. But I, I'd like to just take a couple of moments and get your thoughts about Biden uh, and specifically his move to the left as president. We have not spoken since uh, he took office. And, you know, Biden somebody who has always seemed to have this sense of where the political center is in this country And I'll just ask you, why do you think that he has shifted as president? Is it the pressure from progressives? Is he sensing something? Is it both?
1: I think it's three things. I think it is the progressive movement has moved the country left. You know, I've always said, I think I've said when I'm on town halls with you, that if politics is the art of the possible, then it is our job as progressives, wherever we sit and organizers, wherever we sit to move the boundaries of what is seen as possible. The possible is only limited by what we see as possible. And so I think that that has happened. You know, we've done that on 15. We've done that on climate change. We've done that on so many, on race. Black Lives Matter movement uh, has really changed the conversation about racism in this country. And so I think that that is a big, big part and we should take credit for that. I think the second thing is the pandemic and the, the, tragedies of unemployment, deaths, 567,000 people now, um, of, uh, of racial inequity demonstrated in who has died and who has lost their jobs, that dramatic scale of tragedy has also just made it impossible for people to walk away from the inequity that existed even before the pandemic hit. You can't just blame it on the pandemic, but the pandemic has showcased it. And then the third thing is Biden himself. I mean, I just have to give him credit. He is a, a deeply compassionate person. I do believe that he has had a lot of tragedy in his life. And I kind of feel like the two things of recognizing how he got elected, that he got progressives and uh, you know to vote for him or we got progressives to vote for him. He was elected by a majority that included black, brown, indigenous, young people, poor people who were saying YOU HAVE TO ADDRESS OUR our PROBLEMS IN THE WAKE OF THIS HORRIBLE ADMINISTRATION. I THINK HE RECOGNIZES THAT, AND HE HAS DRAWN um, A LOT OF EXPERIENCE FROM THE TIME HE HAD WITH OBAMA WHEN THEY WEREN'T BOLD ENOUGH, AND I THINK HE REALIZES THAT. SO I THINK IT'S ALL THREE THINGS, AND um, I THINK THE PROGRESSIVE MOVEMENT SHOULD CLAIM A LOT OF CREDIT. Uh, Because sometimes what we do is we feel like we're not making progress and we're pushing and we're pushing and we're pushing, but then there's a tipping point. Something happens and often it's something very bad. I used to talk about this in organizing all the time. Sometimes it's something very bad that happens, but the movement has been built to a point where it's ready to respond and utilize that moment as a moment of transformation.
0: Well, you know, and on that point, a number of uh, political historians and scholars believe that we may be entering a new era in American politics, that the neoliberal era has ended with Trump and good riddance to both. Uh, And uh, and that something new is emerging under Biden. I'll ask you what do you see if you can if you can put it into words what do you see emerging and also how do you see your role in it
1: Yeah well I think that's absolutely true and the big central concept here is that government has a very important role as the equalizer of opportunity as the responder in a moment of crisis only government can actually respond to the needs that people have and the pandemic showcased that and so that's like a crucial centerpiece that neoliberals fought successfully against for so long. Um, The second is the fiscal uh, notions, right? The idea that we have to pay for everything with money right now. And what we know is infrastructure pays for itself. Going bold on the American Rescue Plan paid for itself. That it is necessary for us to make those investments in order for us to then have THE ECONOMIC RESULTS OF THAT GO TO EVERYBODY, accrue TO EVERYBODY. THAT IS A HUGE CHANGE. AND I'LL GIVE YOU ONE EXAMPLE IN OUR MEETING WITH THE WHITE HOUSE WITH RON Klein, WE WERE TALKING ABOUT THIS JOBS PACKAGE, THIS NEXT PACKAGE, AND THEY SAID TO to US EXACTLY WHAT WE'VE BEEN SAYING AS PROGRESSIVES FOR YEARS, WHICH IS WE'RE NOT USING PAY-FORS IN ORDER TO PAY FOR THE PACKAGE. WE'RE USING REVENUE RAISERS in order to make the tax system fair. That is a very interesting distinction that we've been saying for a long time. It's not about having to pay for infrastructure. Infrastructure and jobs bills pay for themselves over time. It is about using this opportunity to fix an unequal system and make sure that corporations and the wealthiest pay their fair share. And by the way, that raises lots of money that we can then invest into the progressive priorities.
0: And it really does represent a paradigm shift in terms of thinking. And, you know, in in a recent Atlantic article, you talked about basically being at the table here and how progressives uh, initially were maybe a little bit in shock, right? That They're being included in these sorts of conversations. Uh, How do you feel that progressives are now adjusting to this place of power
1: well it's been amazing i will say you know i i feel like we have changed um, we have with the rules package that we passed last year for the progressive caucus we have really allowed us as a caucus to be much more nimble and to respond um, quickly to what's happening and we've also gotten laser focused on a couple of key priorities i mean we as progressives always have giant wish lists what we're trying to do now is to say where is the place that the progressive caucus can engage that we are going to have a value added and who else across the democratic caucus can we bring into that so that we can advance this as a bold populist policy that some people won't call themselves progressive, but they believe in the policy. So I'll give you an example, two examples of how we've been so crucial to the discussion. The first is with the American Rescue Plan. I want progressives to take credit for and understand that the checks, the survival checks being in there and the thresholds being kept at the levels that they were kept at is really a progressive victory. We, the Progressive Caucus, working with Bernie Sanders and others in the Senate, helped make that happen. The second one was around minimum wage. Yes, it's true we didn't get minimum wage passed because of the Senate, but know that it would not have been in the bill that the House passed had it not been for the Progressive Caucus. And we're very proud of that. Um, so those are two examples. The third is just around the, um, the priorities for what we're doing moving forward. So right now we're pushing for pharmaceutical drug pricing to be in this next package and to ensure that we're not only keeping the Affordable Care Act subsidies, which we're supportive of, but also that we lower the Medicare eligibility age and that we expand Medicare benefits to include vision, dental, and hearing. And so that's now where laser focused on that along with universality of childcare without work requirements um, and without, you know, expanding the income cap so that everyone can have access to childcare. Those are the kinds of things that progressives are now really weighing in on. And I feel very good about the fact that we're doing it early. And sometimes it doesn't lead to the fireworks that I think people want to see, you know, well, progressives have to oppose this um, and make do Freedom Caucus-like tactics. We are the caucus of yes, our priority is to get government working for regular folks across the country. And that's what we're gonna focus on. And if we can do it early, so that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are saying the things we want them to say that that is what we're going to focus on and of course we always reserve the right to use our leverage and use our power to say no to a bill if we feel like it doesn't go far enough but it's got to inc- we got to be recognizing all of the progressive priorities that are in that bill
0: You know, when I was preparing for our discussion today, I was thinking about that very dynamic that you're discussing, this balance between pushing as hard as you and we must as progressives for our ideals, but also getting legislation onto the president's desk while we have a democratic trifecta. And I think you've spoken to that um, very ably uh, and Um, you mentioned the fight for 15. So I'd like to take a moment and talk about labor, uh, specifically two things that you introduced, the fight for 15 and also the PRO Act. Um, As you mentioned, the the minimum wage did not make it into the relief package. And this is, of course, one of the CPC's biggest goals. What's your game plan next?
1: Yeah, so we've been having um, very uh, regular, uh, frequent discussions about how to get 15 in. In fact, I was just meeting with with uh, Senator Sanders on this, and you know, we have a couple of different ways that we can try to get it in. You know, uh, Stefan, that I was in favor of overruling the parliamentarian. Yes, um, yep. she can be overruled. And can it I just has stop
0: you, happened. actually, if I may, just uh, sort of jump in? I don't mean to interrupt, but w- what are the politics of that, and and what is possible there with the parliamentarian?
1: Well, the parliamentarian is has a job to do, but she's unelected, and her job. Um, IN THIS CASE IT'S A SHE, HER JOB IS TO GIVE AN OPINION, AN ADVISORY OPINION TO THE PRESIDENT OF THE SENATE. AND THAT CAN BE ANYONE. Uh, OFTEN IT IS THE VICE PRESIDENT THAT PRESIDES IN THAT IN THE INSTANCE OF A TIE, BUT IT CAN BE ANYONE IN THE SENATE THAT'S PRESIDING. AND THEN THAT PERSON HAS THE ABILITY AND THE RIGHT, AND IT'S HAPPENED A COUPLE OF TIMES IN THE 70s AND THE 80s, TO IN THE 60s AND THE 70s, EXCUSE ME, TO uh, decide not to take the opinion of the parliamentarian and to move forward with whatever proposal they want. So in this case, the um, the chair of the Senate could have said, thank you very much for that advisory opinion. Um, I believe that it is very important for us to include 15, that it fits into the budget reconciliation rules and um, and to make that ruling. And at that point, it would require a vote of 60 to overturn the chair's ruling. So that is one way that we could have gotten 15 in, but the politics of it are complicated. It isn't done very often. And so there is a reluctance obviously to use that to overrule. But the more the Senate blocks everything, the more we have to tackle, and I'm sure you're gonna ask me about this, THE REAL PROBLEM IN THE SENATE, WHICH IS THE FILIBUSTER AND THE EXISTENCE OF THE FILIBUSTER. BECAUSE THE PARLIAMENTARY QUESTION AROUND THE PARLIAMENTARIAN AND RECONCILIATION, AND THE REASON WE TWIST OURSELVES INTO THESE PARLIAMENTARIAN PRETZELS, um, TRYING TO GET THINGS TO COMPLY WITH BUDGET RECONCILIATION RULES, IS BECAUSE OF THE EXISTENCE OF THE FILIBUSTER. I don't know if I said that clearly.
0: You <laughs> absolutely did. I, I think it, it's a cart and horse uh, kind of yeah. issue. And I, I'm sorry if you were if you had more to say uh, about the fifteen dollars minimum wage. Uh, please continue.
1: Well, we are looking at a number of different strategies. Obviously, the filibuster, you know, is is important. Obviously, um, the parliamentarian stays there. The other is, you know, is there must pass legislation that we can attach it to? So we're looking at all of those options. One of the things we do have to do, though is we have to get all 50 Democrats on board. Um, And we do have a couple, as you know, um, whose uh, constituents in their states are some of the people that would benefit the most um, or who have states where their minimum wage is even higher than what they might be proposing federally. Um, And we need to really mobilize the stories that show the pain of of not having a decent wage and not having just one job that pays you enough to take care of your family and put food on the table and a roof over your head. So we do have a, a little challenge there with, um, with a couple of Democrats, unfortunately, who are not on board yet.
0: We know who they are, and one of them uh, uh, declined the $15 minimum wage, in um, in my opinion, a rather insulting manner. So, yeah, so I think the, the effort needs to be focused there. Um, I also want to talk about the PRO Act, which you introduced with Senator Murray. This, of course, passed the House. This would get rid of right-to-work laws, among other things. Um, it would have prevented a lot of the anti-union uh, chicanery that we saw with the fight to unionize at Amazon. And one of the two senators that you uh, were just referencing, Joe Manchin has signaled that he will support the PRO Act. In in my mind, this is incredibly important. As a union person, uh, this is so incredibly important. How do we advance this bill?
1: Yeah, I'm so proud to be a lead sponsor of that bill in the House. Um, And I was last cycle as well. And I've been pushing for it because it underlies the whole question of workplace democracy, of how workers can bargain Um, FOR THEMSELVES WHAT THEY NEED ON THEIR JOBS, YOU KNOW, FAIR WAGES, BENEFITS, BUT ALSO ALL THE OTHER PIECES THAT GO ALONG WITH WORKPLACE RIGHTS. Um, AND THE PRO ACT TAKES OFF THE TABLE THE POWER OF THE CORPORATION TO FIGHT ANY UNIONIZATION EFFORT, AS WE SAW WITH AMAZON and IN BESSEMER, ALABAMA. Um, IF WE HAD HAD THE PRO ACT IN PLACE, THEN AMAZON WOULD NOT HAVE BEEN ABLE TO CONSTANTLY USE THESE Meetings that they require employees to go to to fight unionization, to delay union elections, uh, and all the other things that you know, as as a union guy, you know, happen when when workers are trying to organize on the job. So, I think that this was, even though the fight was lost to, in you know for a union in Bessemer, the fact that it rose to national prominence and that it actually forced Jeff Bezos to say he wants them to be a company that really rethinks this That was a fairly remarkable statement. We'll have to see, you know, forgive me for not being completely convinced that that's going to happen, but that should be credited to the workers in Alabama who mounted such a national campaign and to all of us in the progressive movement for amplifying that. So the PRO Act is really, really important. And with Joe Manchin's support for that, Um, You know, I think that is another one where if we were to abandon the filibuster, eliminate the filibuster, that would pass with the majority of senators as it should.
0: I want to talk about strategy for getting rid of the filibuster in just a moment because I know you have uh, many thoughts on that, but uh, you know something else that will deliver for workers is the infrastructure package, as you, as you were alluding to earlier, the American Jobs Plan. Um, and if the Jobs Plan is done via reconciliation, which, I mean, surely it must be, uh, it is my understanding that it will be created in various committees and then packaged together by the House Budget Committee, which you, of course, sit on. I wonder how you see your role in the creation of this bill
1: well we have weighed in with our priorities our top five priorities for the progressive caucus on um, what we are calling the jobs bill by the way is both the infrastructure components and the families components we think those two things should be combined and we think they're all about jobs if you're going to create jobs in uh you know in in the infrastructure space you want to make sure that women and men are able to go back and get those jobs so you need to have child care in place you need to have free college in place you need to have um you know health care in place so that people are actually able to get back into the working environment so we combine the two and we call it a jobs bill because Um, I THINK WE SHOULD JUST SAY WHAT THIS IS ABOUT. IT'S NOT ACTUALLY ABOUT INFRASTRUCTURE. IT'S ABOUT JOBS. IT'S ABOUT CREATING MILLIONS OF GREEN JOBS, CREATING A CLIMATE RESILIENCE CORE, CREATING um, JOBS THAT ARE TIED TO PUBLIC TRANSIT, MAKING SURE THAT 40% OF THE INVESTMENTS THAT ARE MADE ACTUALLY GO TO FRONTLINE COMMUNITIES AND TRANSITIONING TO A a, um, electrifying our grid and transitioning to a clean green economy so that is a big piece of it and our role has been to um, identify the priorities. so we've also identified child care as a big priority and we want to make sure that the child care package does not include work requirements the current bill that is in the house has a lot of work requirements and there's been a recent study that comes out that says THAT THOSE WORK REQUIREMENTS COULD STOP HALF OF LOW-INCOME FAMILIES FROM EVEN QUALIFYING OR APPLYING FOR THOSE CHILD CARE PROVISIONS. SO THAT'S VERY IMPORTANT TO US. WE ALSO BELIEVE THAT PHARMACEUTICAL DRUG PRICING NEEDS TO BE IN THIS BILL, AND I JUST RELEASED A STATEMENT CALLING ON THE PRESIDENT AND THE WHITE HOUSE TO INCLUDE HEALTH CARE IN THIS PACKAGE. IT NEEDS TO BE IN THERE. WE NEED TO TAKE ON DRUG PRICING AND THEN USE THE MASSIVE SAVINGS FROM THAT, NOT ONLY to make sure we keep the subsidies, but also to make sure that we lower the Medicare eligibility age as candidate Joe Biden promised last year, um, and that we expand the benefits to cover medical, dental, <coughs> and hearing. And so those those are a few of the uh, priorities. Housing is another big priority, but honestly, I think we've won on that one. So we're not necessarily emphasizing it. We're calling for a $70 billion investment um in in housing and addressing the housing backlog and that is the democratic position now so the progressive caucus by engaging early and calling for it early can already declare that as a win so we are now working with the committee chairs and our progressive caucus members to really push on these priorities and then i'm talking very regularly to the speaker as well and coordinating with our outside partners to make sure that we go big bold and fast
0: I thank you for laying all of that out, particularly the the priorities, um, because it is an enormous bill, the two point three trillion dollars. Um, and uh, I, I want to also ask about the Thrive agenda. I'm going to do this for slightly personal reasons. Um, this is the proposal that calls for ten trillion dollars over ten years, much of this concentrated on on you know the climate. And I'll just confess, I'm grappling with how it connects with the jobs package, with the infrastructure package. And, and I, I don't think that I'm alone in this because I've heard similar questions from listeners. So maybe you can help clarify, is it meant to pass in addition to the jobs plan? Is it meant to replace it? Is it meant to push the jobs plan further? What, what, what are your thoughts?
1: It's, it's really um, meant to lay out a blueprint or a vision for what an intersectional agenda looks like that addresses climate justice, racial equity, um, and uh, really creates um, 15 million new jobs and gets us to the place where we need to be on climate. So this is, you know, I think, for, think about it as sort of if you had a plan and it was a blueprint, that that is the blueprint. The jobs package that President Biden has laid out gets us a big part of the way there but not all the way there. So that's why we've called for a bigger investment than what the Biden administration has laid out. They called for two trillion plus about a half a trillion in tax credits that would also be dedicated towards climate initiatives and and moving towards renewable energy, for example. Um, and so that's about two and a half trillion but we, we were looking for an investment that's somewhere between seven to 10 trillion over 10 years. Now, it is important to know that their climate investments in the jobs package that they've released are front loaded. So, you know, there is more money going in in the early years, according to their package, but we still think there's more to do. And so that's how I think about it, that the Thrive Agenda is the big vision it's laid out THE BIDEN JOBS PACKAGE GOES PARTWAY THERE. WE WOULD LIKE TO SEE IT GO FURTHER. THE ROLE OF THE PROGRESSIVE CAUCUS IS TO TRY TO GET IT TO MOVE FURTHER. AND WE ARE SO PROUD TO BE WORKING WITH INDIVISIBLE AND MANY OTHER PROGRESSIVE ORGANIZATIONS ON THIS LETTER THAT IS OUT THERE RIGHT NOW um, AROUND THE SCOPE, um, THE the SIZE, AND THE SPEED OF THIS NEXT PACKAGE. AND I HOPE THAT EVERYONE WILL CONTACT THEIR CONGRESSIONAL REPRESENTATIVE, IF IT'S NOT ME BECAUSE I'M HELPING TO LEAD THAT LETTER, um, <laughs> To, to the Speaker and to the President and to the Majority Leader in the Senate to say, let's go big, let's go bold, and let's get it done quickly before the August recess, because this is really urgent.
0: Thank you for clearing that up. Uh, so, yeah, so we'll think of the Thrive Agenda as a blueprint of what could and, and ultimately should be then. Um, I'd like to take a minute and talk about immigration, because you've introduced a number of bills on immigration. Uh, most recently, you introduced the No Ban Act and reintroduce the Access to Counsel Act uh, and also the Pro-Kid Act, which I do want to ask you about in detail in just a moment. But I'll just mention a recent poll from uh, Data for Progress shows very broad support for immigration in the immigration reform in this country right now, particularly for things like the Dreamers Act. In, In your mind, is there a way for us to use this support to pass some legislation?
1: Yes. I mean, one of the priorities I forgot to mention, um, and I'm sorry I did for the five priorities, is a pathway to citizenship for essential workers to be included in this next jobs package. Um, You know, Stefan, that uh, immigration is so near and dear to my heart. I spent 20 years working on it before coming to Congress. And we are um, working very hard on every possible way we can get immigration policy done. That includes any bill that's on the table. That includes passing separate bills. We, we passed, as you mentioned, it's Judy Chu's uh, bill, the No Ban Act, but I was a lead person in driving it through the Judiciary oh, Committee. Oh, thank you for
0: clarifying, okay.
1: Yeah, and then the access to counsel bill, which was the first bill that I introduced as a member of Congress in, in uh, 2017, it, coming out of the Muslim ban, and the fact that people weren't getting access to counsel in airports and being deported and being told to sign away their valid papers. And then, of course, I reintroduced it after the Iranian-Americans were held at the northern border. So I'm so proud that we've passed that, um, uh, and I'm hoping that it passes the Senate. The White House has said that they're supportive of it. So that's a big deal. But also the DREAM Act, the Farmworker Modernization Act, um, we passed those actually with bipartisan support. So we're looking to pass those individual pieces. And then, of course, we're looking at the full U.S. Citizenship Act, um, which is a a much more robust bill, and saying that answers the question of the 11 million that are undocumented, the family migration system that needs to be strengthened, and many other pieces. So um, we are sort of looking at immigration on every level. And if I can just say, that one area that I have disagreed with the president on is what just happened on the refugee resettlement cap. Um, He had said as a candidate that he was going to increase the refugee cap from what Trump did to it. He destroyed it. Lowest number of refugees admitted in our history, um, only 15,000. And uh, candidate Biden had said he was going to change that, increase it to 125,000, and then as president, early February, he said, again, that he was he was going to sign the presidential declaration to set the refugee cap at that level, 62,500 for the rest of this year and 125,000 for next year. And he didn't do it, he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And, um, and then he signed a declaration that basically kept the cap at its current level, but did change the geographics of how the allocations happen, which needed to happen. So I have been urging the president to quickly do that because I think it is not only important for the refugee program, but if, if, if he is backing away from the promise on something that is the most bipartisan, easiest, and frankly, relatively small but critically important piece of immigration policy, then what's going to happen to the rest of our priorities? And, This is a frustration I have had with Democrats for a long time as an activist. I called out Democrats over and over again for always throwing immigrants under the bus and being unwilling to lean into the issue of immigration and fight for us. We need to fight for immigrants and we need to lean in to all of the arguments that we know that make immigration so popular. And let's not give Republicans the opportunity to use us as immigrants as political footballs.
0: Thank you for saying that. And I know that this is something that we need to get right because we know that the uh, the Republicans are going to use this as a wedge issue in, in 2022. And so, yeah, I appreciate you laying all of that out. And I said that I wanted to return to the Pro-Kid Act. This is the Protection of Kids in Immigrant Detention Act. Um, the Progressive Caucus sent a letter to HHS addressing the needs of these children at at our southern border. I wonder if you could just tick down uh, very briefly, what specifically are you calling for?
1: Yeah, so the letter we sent was very detailed, and we put it together with a number of experts in this arena. And what we're saying is there are, we understand the need for the influx facilities, which are these short-term facilities being used to house kids because the Trump administration destroyed ALL, ALL, ALL OF THE INFRASTRUCTURE THAT EXISTED TO PROCESS UNACCOMPANIED KIDS ACROSS THE BORDER. AND WE RECOGNIZE THAT. AND WE ARE GRATEFUL TO THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION FOR HAVING A VERY DIFFERENT APPROACH TO UNACCOMPANIED CHILDREN AT THE BORDER. Um, THAT SAID, IF WE'RE GOING TO USE THE INFLUX FACILITIES, HAVE TO USE THEM IN THE SHORT TERM, then we want to make sure that kids are not kept in there for longer than is legally permissible. We want to make sure that the conditions are upheld. We want to make sure that there are real supports uh, and safety services that are attached to these influx facilities. So there's a short-term set of things that we want to make sure about. But then we also say, we don't think these influx facilities should exist. We understand they exist now. They're better than holding kids in a border uh, patrol station but we want to build this system so that we don't need to use those, that we have permanent uh, ability to move kids quickly to be with their families, that we um, ensure that there is actually legal representation for these kids. And so a number of things that we think the Biden administration should put in place as quickly as possible that prevent us from using these influx facilities again and keeping kids in these terrible conditions.
0: So yeah, the, the, certainly oversight, uh, protection of conditions, and, and ultimately, as you say, these these really shouldn't exist in the first place. Um, I would like to also get your thoughts on health care. Um, this is on everybody's mind right now. Uh, and I will note that over half the Democratic caucus and three committee chairs have now signed on to Medicare for All. Uh, this in my mind is a very, very big deal, um, but moderates are still wanting to improve the ACA. Uh, the New Democrats just sent a letter to uh, the president to include the ACA in the American Family Plan. I'll just ask you what your sense is. Do you feel like Medicare for all is where the country ultimately wants to go? Or are they more partial to what the new Dems are pushing?
1: No, Medicare for all has stayed so popular across the country in spite of billions of dollars that have been poured in over the last decade into preserving the status quo for the wealthiest insurance, you know, these huge insurance for profit insurance companies and for-profit drug companies, and so I—I um, I feel like when I came in, I campaigned on Medicare for all. I took over the Medicare for all bill from John Conyers, where he had had a resolution before. It was a 19-page resolution. I introduced for the first time a um, 100 and I think a 64-page bill around how exactly we would go from the system we have to Medicare for all. I recognize that our Medicare for All candidates lost in the presidential election. We do not have a president who believes that Medicare for All is where we should go. He's very deeply tied to the Affordable Care Act. And so what I have been trying to do is build the movement on the inside to educate people about what Medicare for All is and how we get there and why it's so popular in their districts. And that is what the movement for Medicare for All has been doing as well. AND SO LAST CONGRESS, WHEN I INTRODUCED MEDICARE FOR ALL, BY THE END OF CONGRESS, I GOT TO HALF OF THE DEMOCRATIC CAUCUS, BUT WE STILL DIDN'T HAVE A LOT OF COMMITTEE CHAIRS ON BOARD. THIS CONGRESS, WHEN I INTRODUCED MEDICARE FOR ALL, WE STARTED WITH OVER HALF OF THE DEMOCRATIC CAUCUS ON BOARD AND WITH THESE 15 COMMITTEE CHAIRS ON BOARD. LAST CONGRESS, I HAD TO FIGHT TOOTH AND NAIL TO GET HEARINGS ON MEDICARE FOR ALL in the relevant committees. For the first time in the history of Congress, we got hearings on Medicare for All, which is important to do because you have to establish a legislative record if you want to pass a major piece of legislation. It's not as easy as just bring a bill to a floor and have an up or down vote. It just doesn't happen that way. So this Congress, we've already gotten uh, some of the committee chairs on board for hearings. So I feel like we've made a big step forward, but we just have to recognize that we still don't have the votes even among Democrats. And so we have got to, and we know who those Democrats are. They're the people who aren't signed on to the bill. So what the movement can do is to continue to build the movement on the outside in those districts where we we need to get more Democrats comfortable with the idea of Medicare for all and take on, of course, the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies. Medicare for all, if it were brought to a vote in the House right now, Would HAVE A REAL CHALLENGE I THINK EVERYBODY UNDERSTANDS THAT SO LET'S CONTINUE TO DO THE WORK AND REMEMBER THAT NO GREAT IDEA WHETHER IT WAS YOU KNOW ENDING SLAVERY OR PASSING MEDICARE OR SOCIAL SECURITY HAPPENED OVERNIGHT AND um, THESE THINGS DO TAKE work to get them forward. And I'm so proud to be leading the work on the inside of Congress.
0: Well, we're proud of you for doing it. And, you know, um, just sort of uh, sidestepping Congress and the Senate for a moment, I'll ask you, we'll sort of return to what we were talking about with Biden earlier, uh, that he seems to have a sense of where the country is is moving on particular issues. Is it your sense that he is gettable on Medicare for all?
1: Um, you know, the thing that affects this is THE OPPOSITION FROM THE OUTSIDE IS A BIG CHALLENGE, JUST AS IT IS ON FOSSIL FUELS, FOR EXAMPLE, um, AND ALL THE LOBBYISTS. BUT ALSO THAT JOE BIDEN WAS THERE WHEN THE AFFORDABLE CARE ACT WAS SIGNED INTO LAW. IT WAS ONE OF HIS, YOU KNOW, REALLY BIG ACHIEVEMENTS. AND SO I THINK THAT IS THE CHALLENGE. BUT WHEN I CO-CHAIRED AT BERNIE SANDERS REQUEST THE BIDEN- SANDERS UNITY TASK FORCE ON Healthcare LAST SUMMER, WHAT WE WERE ABLE TO DO, is get Joe Biden to agree to some foundational elements of Medicare for all that would make an enormous difference in this moment where we're trying to move forward and not, not move back or not just do the same things we've done in the past. So lowering the Medicare eligibility age is a big one. And we got him to agree to that. Um, you know, expanding Medicare benefits is a big one to include dental vision and hearing um actually doing bold pharmaceutical drug pricing is a big one we also had a number of agreements around the public option which hasn't even come up yet but um of making sure that if somebody lost their health insurance because they lost their job as happened during the pandemic then those people would be automatically enrolled into a government program um and so those are all things that were Sort of interim steps to getting us to where we need to be, and he did agree to those. But now we have to get him to actually, um, you know, push them and include them, which is why we're making such a big push for healthcare in this next package.
0: I. We're going to get to audience questions in just a second, everybody. But I, I kind of saved this topic for last because I think most people, uh, a, a lot of people see this as very, very important, and that is democracy reform. Um, we know that you have been way out in front on this. H.R. 1, the For the People Act, uh, D.C. statehood, certainly filibuster reform, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, these are all right now in the hands of the Senate. So I'll just ask you, and I, I don't know if we need to hyperbolize much here, but I'll just ask you. How do you see the stakes here? and then maybe we can dress a little bit about what we can do on the activists end to help?:
1: The stakes couldn't be higher. It's filibuster reform or voting rights. It's filibuster reform or corporate accountability in HR1. It's filibuster reform or clim- real climate justice plans. I mean, you can go down the- it's filibuster reform or gun safety legislation. You can go down the list of any issue that is important to you and I can show you why if we don't reform this racist legacy, Jim Crow legacy called filibuster, um, we will not be able to get the priorities that the American people want. And that is why we are holding, we just co-signed a, uh, we just co-led a letter with Cori Bush and two moderates, Jason Crow and Sean Kasten, that is about reforming the filibuster. We got over uh, almost 100 Democrats on that letter across the ideological spectrum of Democrats. We are doing a big filibuster week of action, the week of May 2nd, and there will be members of Congress doing educational events with their constituents on the history and the legacy of um, Senate procedure and how it affects what we're doing now, um, because we think it's really important that constituents understand that. You know, when I ran for Congress, I think I was one of only three or four people, uh, Congress members, who did not accept corporate PAC money. I hope Washington understands (laughs) that that was something I did long before it was popular. In fact, ECU was just getting started at the time and Citizens United. But I felt it was just so important that we disentangle money from our jobs money should not be tied to this and it is we understand that hr1 is so important to getting that work done and also to reforming voting rights so that the kinds of bills that are passing in georgia and texas that literally will suppress voices for the rest of our lives um, do not pass and get cemented into law so i think you know it's it's really critically important that the movement engage on this, um, there is no way to pass HR 1 right now um, and get 60 votes for it because there are too many Republicans who are refusing to even accept that there's anything wrong with voting in this country. And in fact, they're going to the other side and um, endorsing these bills from Georgia and Texas and elsewhere.
0: Exceptionally well put, and and thank you uh, for for that. Uh, I will mention that Indivisible is going to be having a filibuster day of action. It is a colorama to our senators on Monday, April twenty sixth. Cat, I believe, will drop a link about that into the chat bar. Um, a couple other questions about this. First, I wonder if you if you have a sense of when S one HR ones one is going to come up for a vote. I believe uh, Senator Merkley believes early summer. And then, and this is really kind of the $64,000 question in my mind, if it doesn't pass, will we have another shot at this?
1: Well, I think the strategy may be that we've got to suffer a few defeats on critical pieces of legislation from voting rights to S1 in order to get all the Democrats on board with reforming the filibuster. And so um, I think that is what we have to steel ourselves for. WE ARE GOING TO HAVE A LOT OF ANGER WHEN S-1 GETS PUT UP. IF IT DOESN'T PASS, WE'RE GOING TO HAVE A LOT OF ANGER IF VOTING RIGHTS GETS PUT UP AND IT DOESN'T PASS. Um, ALL OF THESE BILLS, GUN REFORM, WE THINK THE SENATE SHOULD PUT GUN REFORM BILLS UP RIGHT NOW. LET'S PUT THEM UP RIGHT NOW. And, AND IF THEY FAIL, WE KNOW EXACTLY WHO'S TO BLAME AND we can then use that to say, all right, you know, if Republicans are just gonna block us on things that are remarkably popular across the country, including with Republicans, like common sense gun safety legislation, then we're going to have to reform the filibuster. So that may be some of what you see unfold. <laughs>
0: I, I like that approach. And really, it, it sort of, it, it presents an almost existential threat to some of these elected officials, right? They, they, they see uh, these popular things that are not going through because of the filibuster. And they're like, well, that might stand between me and keeping my job. So maybe that's where this ultimately uh, winds up breaking. You, we'll get to audience questions in just a moment. But okay, I, I, can I just I,
1: say one quick one? Of quick course, please. thing on that? Um, You know what you saw happen with the hate crimes bills that just passed uh, you know the the uh, anti-asian
0: it was nearly unanimous yeah
1: yeah what happened is that republicans didn't want to give those were not expected to pass they they republicans have voted against those bills numerous times but what happened is they didn't want to give more energy to the reform or eliminate the filibuster crowd And so they didn't want that to show their intransigence at refusing to pass any bills. So all of a sudden it moved from nobody's gonna vote for that to we're gonna find a bipartisan solution. So I think even the threat of filibuster reform and elimination and the growing movement for that is already having an effect, but it probably won't have enough of effect on some of these big pieces of legislation like S-1.
0: Yeah, I I think that's that's all absolutely right. Um, And I'm seeing a lot of uh, heads nodding along with what you're saying there. Um, We have about 10 minutes and I really want to get into audience questions. But I will just ask you as as you and I wrap up our Q&A portion here. There is so much going on right now, as we have just detailed. And I think people are just overwhelmed. Um, And they and people look to you for guidance. What, what would you say are our most critical priorities right now if you had to run down three or four?
1: I would say the jobs bill and making it really big and inclusive, including families, making sure that, that the president is hearing from you all the time that this needs to be bold and it needs to include all of these pieces and it needs to be done quickly. And he needs to help lead that fight. The second thing is, I would say filibuster reform. I think critically important. Um, and And really, those two things would get so much else accomplished. And so that's where I feel like the energy is most important, but of course, you know, there are things we have to respond to, the refugee cap, immigration issues, there's so many pieces to all of this. And the jobs bill, as we've outlined it as progressives, actually do address Uh, Does address a lot of our priorities do address a lot of those issues,
0: right? That's the wonderful thing about the jobs bill is that when you say we prioritize, excuse me, you say we prioritize the jobs bill, that includes an awful lot. And then certainly the filibuster. So let's move on to audience questions. Um, Someone asks, what happened with student loan forgiveness? This could make a huge difference to my entire generation. I'm 33. Can this still happen? And I would love for you to answer that, but I will also let uh, listeners and viewers know that you and Senator Sanders just released a bill that would make community colleges and trade schools free.
1: Actually, it would make two-year and four-year colleges free. Um, the The College for All Act makes uh, four-year colleges free, tuition free, and fee free for all families earning up to 125,000. So that's the majority of families across the country. Thank you for the clarification. Um, And it makes two-year colleges free for everybody. Um, So that bill is the College for All Act. And please urge your representatives, if it's not me, to (laughs) sign on to that bill. Um, And so in terms of student debt cancellation, this is something that is so important. And we have been pushing the White House. We believe the White House can do this on its own. THAT THEY HAVE THE EXECUTIVE AUTHORITY TO CANCEL STUDENT LOAN DEBT. SO WE HAVE BEEN PUSHING ALONG WITH SENATOR WARREN HAS BEEN THE BIGGEST CHAMPION OF THIS ON THE SENATE SIDE TO GET THE WHITE HOUSE TO CANCEL UP TO $50,000 IN STUDENT LOAN DEBT. OUR UNDERSTANDING IS THAT THEY ARE STILL IN THAT PROCESS OF CONSIDERING THAT. THEY ARE GETTING OPINIONS FROM LEGAL uh, FOLKS IN THEIR LEGAL DEPARTMENT. On whether or not they have the authority to do that, because obviously we don't want that overturned in a court decision. So that is the push. And then at the same time, of course, we have a bill to cancel student loan debt. Um, this is this is kind of a no-brainer. One point when I started running for Congress in 2016, which feels like a long time ago now, it was 1.2 trillion in student loan debt. Now, Stefan, it's 1.7 trillion, almost 1.8 trillion wow. in student loan debt. So you see, and the fastest growing demographic of people with student loan debt now is actually older people like grandparents who still have student loan debt or they're taking it on for their kids or their grandkids. So it really affects people across the spectrum. And whoever asked the question is absolutely right. It would make a giant difference. And so we are continuing to push. It's one of our top priorities to push the White House to do it through executive action.
0: Great. Uh, Jake asks, do you support the Duwamish tribe's recent petition for federal recognition status? And if so, in what way?
1: So one of the most important things is to I have supported that for some time. I think the challenge here is that we have already had uh, rulings that um, from the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs that does not grant that status to the Duwamish. So I have told the tribe and I've told other tribes that oppose it. TO PLEASE TRY TO WORK TOGETHER TO FIGURE OUT IF WE CAN BRING THE TRIBES ONTO ONE PAGE MY FRIEND DEB HOLLAND IS THE NEW uh, SECRETARY OF THE INTERIOR WE'RE SO PROUD OF HER Um, AND I WENT OUT AND CAMPAIGNED FOR HER EARLY I THINK I MIGHT HAVE BEEN ONE OF THE FIRST MEMBERS OF CONGRESS TO ENDORSE HER Um, AND YOU KNOW I'VE ASKED HER TO ALSO um, WORK WITH ME I'M GOING TO HAVE A MEETING WITH HER TO DISCUSS THIS BECAUSE I THINK IT'S A CHALLENGE WHEN THE TRIBES ARE DIVIDED ON A TRIBE'S APPLICATION FOR FEDERAL RECOGNITION, IT MAKES IT VERY DIFFICULT. AND SO I THINK, YOU KNOW, WE NEED TO FIGURE OUT A a SITUATION WHERE WE GET A a BIGGER NUMBER OF TRIBES ON BOARD FOR um, RECOGNITION.
0: We have a question about housing. Mindy asks, there are only 31 available rental units for every 100 low-income renters. How can we ensure truly affordable housing for all? This is a problem that touches every corner of this state, and we know that there have been solutions proposed at the municipal level, at the county level, at the legislative level. What can be done at the federal level on this?
1: Yeah, well, at the federal level, this is a huge priority for me. I just spoke at, the national, at a national conference on uh, housing. I'VE INTRODUCED A BILL CALLED THE HOUSING IS A HUMAN RIGHT BILL um, BECAUSE I ACTUALLY BELIEVE HOUSING IS SORT OF AT THE CENTER OF EVERYTHING ELSE. YOU KNOW, IF YOU if you WANT TO GET PEOPLE A JOB, A STABLE LIFE, IF YOU WANT TO DEAL WITH ALL THE SUPPORT SERVICES THEY NEED, THEY NEED TO BE HOUSED. THEY CAN'T BE UNSHELTERED. AND we, IN ORDER TO DO THAT, WE NEED MORE HOUSING UNITS. SO WE HAVE TO INVEST AT THE FEDERAL LEVEL. WE HAVE DISINVESTED IN HOUSING OVER THE LAST DECADE. We need to reinvest in housing with significant dollars from the federal level to actually build more affordable housing to provide rental subsidies and to make sure that housing is affordable and so that is at the center and of course we need to focus on certain vulnerable populations so in my housing as a human right bill first of all we endorse the concept of housing first Um, you got to get housing first and people have to be sheltered and secondly we also set aside DOLLARS AND PROGRAMS TO INVEST IN THESE NONPROFITS THAT DEAL WITH PARTICULARLY VULNERABLE POPULATIONS, INCLUDING THE TRANS POPULATION, FOR EXAMPLE, AND OTHER um, IMMIGRANT POPULATIONS, BLACK, BROWN, INDIGENOUS POPULATIONS. SO THAT IS A REALLY IMPORTANT PIECE, AND THAT'S WHY HOUSING IS A CRITICAL PRIORITY FOR US IN THIS NEXT PACKAGE. WE CAN BUILD NEW HOUSING AND WE CAN BUILD IT GREEN, WE CAN CREATE MILLIONS OF JOBS, AND WE CAN HOUSE PEOPLE WHO ARE UNSHELTERED. IF WE DON'T BUILD MORE HOUSING, we are not going to be able to address the crises of homelessness and uh, people being kicked out um, of their housing because they can't afford rent. It's It's just not possible. We need more housing stock.
0: We had a question about the bill that we were discussing earlier, um, the Senate Bill 937. This is the anti-Asian hate crime bill. Uh, Samishka asks, do you believe the House will pass it? The Senate passed it, I believe it was 94 to 1 with, um, well, with Josh Hawley being the sole holdout there. Um, what, what do you think about his chances in the House?
1: yes it will pass it is not quite as strong as the version that grace meng has championed and authored in the house um the the bill that the senate passed does have some changes to that but obviously we think this is a really important issue and um i I serve as the as the chair of the immigration subcommittee for the congressional asian pacific american caucus this is a huge priority for KPAC and it will pass
0: Kit Burns asks, "I would like to have HR 1170 Social Security expansion brought up for a vote in the House and Senate. Let's find out who supports this strengthening Social Security by taxing passive income. Thoughts on that?" I
1: think that is um, John Larson's bill, if I'm not mistaken, um, and that is a bill that we, at the Progressive Caucus, has endorsed, and that we are continuing to push for. We think this is absolutely critical. And actually, John got in the last Congress. I think he had. Uh, enough Democrats on that bill to pass it so it is frustrating to us that it hasn't been brought to the floor for a vote or if it didn't have quite enough it had a significant number Um, and so I've been working with him and he's starting his campaign all over again to help bring that to the floor Uh, we I've spoken at the Social Security Works events almost every year for the last I don't know five six seven years um, because this is not a an entitlement social security is not an entitlement it is an earned benefit it is something that we do to protect people's ability to have a life of dignity when they get old and they've spent all of their lives working and so for us it should be easy to raise or eliminate the cap on income so that we bring more money in and that we make this earned benefit Um, available to everyone and that we make some very important updates and reforms like keeping pace with, um, you know, having a cola so that we're keeping pace with inflation because those benefits for elderly folks are just going down and down and down in terms of their purchasing power and that needs to be related to the area in which they are in. So that bill, John Larson's bill, addresses a lot of those reforms that need to be made as well as expanding social security benefits um, and and raising the uh, income threshold.
0: And I really appreciate your framing on that. It is absolutely not an entitlement. We pay into this our entire lives. Um, uh, Sally, this is our final question. Sally Fouché asks, what do you think of the various crisis response bills before Congress, such as Katie Porter's Mental Health Justice Act, Representative Smith's Diversion Bill, and Rod Wyden's CAHOOTS Bill? Um, will funding be restricted to non-police, non-armed projects? And I will just say that these are uh, alternative Uh, approaches to uh, policing, uh, particularly when it comes to behavioral health issues. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, very, very uh, important to deal with mental health in this time. I think we are seeing the effects of this pandemic on mental health already, something that was not covered sufficiently. Of course, Medicare for all covers and expands mental health uh, treatment for people. But Katie has done a really great job on that bill, and we're very supportive of it. AND THEN I HAVE CHAMPIONED YOU ALL KNOW ABOUT THE LAW ENFORCEMENT ASSISTED DIVERSION PROGRAM ONE OF OUR uh, PROGRAMS THAT WAS STARTED HERE IN SEATTLE I THINK IS LOOKING TO BE STRENGTHENED EVEN MORE BY REMOVING LAW ENFORCEMENT EVEN MORE FROM THAT BUT THE IDEA IS THAT YOU DIVERT um, PEOPLE WHO DO NOT NEED TO BE IN LAW ENFORCEMENT CUSTODY BUT NEED SUPPORTIVE SERVICES uh, INTO THOSE SUPPORTIVE SERVICES I WAS ABLE TO GET EVERY YEAR I'VE DOUBLED THE AMOUNT OF MONEY for the that program at a national level, so we use Seattle as a pilot. I think the first year I got two and a half million. The second year, uh, second cycle, I got uh, second year I got five million, and then I got ten million in the last cycle for a national model that uh, uses the Seattle program of diversion as as part of um, part of. Really, how do we get people the services they need? Let's not just funnel everybody to us towards law enforcement. Listen, 911 does this right now in different ways, right? When you call 911, if you've got a fire, it gets routed to fire. If you've got something else, it gets routed to something else. If it's D V call, it gets routed to a DV unit. Why can't we do that with any number of things? Why is it that law enforcement has to be the first place that responds both for the officers who I don't think should be put in that position but also for the individuals who then end up in a criminal justice system when really what we need to do is have a compassionate caring society that recognizes that we are all better off only when we are all better off so let's be compassionate let's be kind I know this is the last question so I'm just going to say please wear your mask Um, make sure you're continuing to be careful, and for heaven's sakes, get vaxxed as soon as you can get vaxxed, because um, that is really important to protecting all of us and you
0: masks vast uh, uh, max is <laughs> a tongue twister now all of a sudden masks vaccinations and compassion what a wonderful uh, way to, to leave this and I will mention actually before we uh, go that we are having an event on I believe may 4th can back me up on this uh, our very next event is Tuesday may 4th and we are going to be talking all about the things that the congresswoman just mentioned uh, doing an entire town hall about uh, behavioral health and policing um, congresswoman Jayapal, it is always so engaging uh, speaking with you I always I will just confess I always feel better Um, after I speak with you. You have this wonderful effect on me and I think everybody else uh, in in really uh, managing to talk about the practical, but also talk about the the ideal in a way that really brings it together uh, for all of us. And so just on behalf of Indivisibles across the state, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Indivisible. We love you all.
0: And that'll do it for this week. Thanks again to Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Thanks also to Rachel Berkson, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, Kevin Jones, and Chantel Thurman. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. If you'd like to get in touch, our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.